Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to the one and only podcast on the internet about movies. Hard to believe, I know, but I've looked, I've scoured the internet, and I cannot find one single other podcast about movies. Uh, Kobe, what do you think about that? Well, I, uh, I too find it hard to believe. I, I feel like there's, there's a podcast for everything. There's food and mouse pads and cups and controllers and music, but nothing about movies crazy yeah i mean unbelievable if you ask me i mean like i said i I was on spotify for hours hours the other day looking for people talking about movies like you and i do and i i came up with absolutely nothing insane yeah now we have no one to steal from i I don't know yeah i mean and that's you know that's why i was looking because i feel creatively bankrupt so i was hoping to find something from some other person that I could use, nothing. Damn shame. But you know what? It's it's not all bad, Kobe. I was having a look at our analytics the other day, and you got you got to hear this. We are the second most listened to podcast on Spotify. Can you believe that? <laughs> no, I uh, I actually can't. Who, who's who's well, number one? You know, I I've never heard of it. I, I don't know how. I I guess. I just don't really listen to podcasts besides ours. It was something called the 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 what was his name? Joe Joe Grogan? The Joe Grogan experience, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think I don't I've know what the hell it is. I You've heard about it? Yeah, it's like a it's like a primate drop in DMT, I think. That's it sounds interesting. I, I don't know. So the podcast is hosted by a monkey? Yeah, honestly, I think <laughs> humanity has gone far. We're putting monkeys in jobs now. So you mean to tell me that there there is a podcast that's beating ours that is hosted by an ape? Okay, are you telling me you wouldn't want to see like this this big bald monkey talk about uh the president and Kanye West and their favorite acid trips? No. We're humans. Humans number 1, man. <sighs> I mean I kind of prefer monkeys, to be honest with you. Really? So you want to hear a monkey talk about movies? How do you not want to hear that? That sounds so interesting. I don't. Would would a monkey even be able to articulate its thoughts on a movie? Like, what what happens if you strap a monkey into a chair in front of a TV and you put on a racer head? What what happens to that monkey? <laughs> I I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's a good jumping in film for a monkey. That's a good way yeah. to turn away from humanity. Yeah, probably not. Have you seen how aggressive <laughs> these apes can get? Yes, they rip people's faces off. Yeah, it, it's insane. Anyway, Joe Grogan. Joe Rogan, okay, maybe that's your name. Listen, if, you're, if you can hear this, you big bald bastard, we're coming for you. This is the Synchronicity Podcast, <laughs> and we're coming for you. We are going to be the number one podcast on Spotify you great big ape. Well, with that declaration of war out of the way, I'm not entirely certain what made me declare war on Joe Rogan of all people this episode. Joe Rogan, of course, not exactly known for having conversations about movies. Uh, this is the Synchronicity Podcast, and while we're not the only movie podcast on the internet, we are a movie podcast, and... You know what? We got some movies to talk about. But first, I'm your host, Destin, and I'm joined once again 
by my good friend and co-host, Kobe. Kobe, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I am doing fantastic because the movies we watched this week were really interesting, and I'm very excited to talk about them with you. I think there's one that uh, we maybe both are a little bit more excited to talk about, but you know what? They were both great, and they're both going to be very interesting topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely two... Yeah, I'd say great. I'd say two great films, so excited for sure. Yeah, so so let's get right into the discussion on the first movie. We don't need to delay any longer with any more declarations of war or any more superfluous and unnecessary tangents that aren't related to movies. Of course, you know, something that you and I are somewhat known for. <laughs> Uh, the, the first movie that we will be discussing this week is, of course, 2018's Wildlife, directed by Paul Dano, known primarily for his acting. This is his directorial debut. Uh, Kobe and I, we both like There Will Be Blood a lot. It's amongst our top favorites. He was fantastic in that. He's fantastic in Little Miss Sunshine. And... His abilities as an actor made me very excited to watch this movie that he created. Uh, This movie is a family drama set in a sleepy Montana town. Jerry, Joe, and Jeanette seem at first to be an idyllic American family, but the move to Montana has revealed the fragility of Jerry and Jeanette's relationship. After losing his job, the impulsive Jerry, experiencing the ennui of mid-age, decides to join the ranks of men volunteering themselves and possibly their lives to fight the wildfires raging in the Montana hills. It's then, as his father abandons the family and his mother loses grip with the identity she's held for years, that the young Joe struggles and matures into his own man. Kobe, I'm going to pass this over to you, and you can give your thoughts first. Okay. Um... To start off with, I think I didn't exactly know what I was going going into. Uh, obviously, this is, as you said, Paul Dano's uh, first and currently only uh, directorial debut at the time of recording, anyway. Um, I suppose I figured it would be something uh, simple and emotional, which I'd say simple... On the surface, maybe, is a good description for this film, but emotional is, is certainly a, uh, the best describer for it. It's uh, incredibly impactful, I think. It took me a little bit to get into it, but I think as the characters reveal themselves more often, uh, they kind of bear themselves uh, to their surrounding characters, whether it's uh, Jeanette, kind of showing her her true feelings to Joe, despite the fact that, you know, uh, he's her son. Maybe he shouldn't have to be exposed to that sort of thing. But uh, she gets more real uh, as things goes on. Uh, You get this sense of falseness from her, I'd say. She's like maybe holding back on what she really wants to say. She's still... She's sort of spiteful sounding, but she's never quite on the real cusp of what she's trying to say. And I think the slow, uh, maybe downfall, 
uh, of this this whole family is just really tragic to watch, um, especially seeing like a child being exposed to their parents' problems and how that affects uh, him, Joe. Um, yeah, I think those elements work really well. Um, and it's kind of, I said, I went in having no expectations, but after watching, it feels so much like Paul Dano that it makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, Paul Dano, I was actually really surprised. I, you know, I know Paul Dano is a talented actor, but I was really surprised at how well he managed the job of directing. Mm-hmm. This movie is really well directed. And, you know, I after watching the movie, and I'll get into more of my like actual thoughts on the movie, but I just want to lead into this with, I, I listened to some interviews and I read some interviews with Paul Dano about this movie. And the way he, that he talks about it is really interesting. You know, he was obviously very passionate. But I think his experience as an actor directly translated into what he was doing with the directing of this movie. It seems like he gave the actors so much room to work with and to bring their own characters to life. Um, You know, Ed Oxenbold as Joe, for pretty much a breakout role, I mean, he has very little on IMDb before or after this, at least anything that would be considered like a critical success. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of like more teen movies and young adult kind of stuff, right? He was fantastic in this. His emotional range was great. And you listen to these interviews and Paul Dano is is talking about Ed and how he just, he gave Ed this room to work with. And I think that I think that, you know, most Hollywood directors wouldn't give a young, untested actor like Ed all this room to work with that Paul did. I think that Paul's experience as an actor in, I mean, you know, a, a lot of really big and bold and interesting movies has shown him what is necessary to evoke a good performance out of an actor and especially a young one you know i mean paul dano started acting when he was pretty young himself and you know i think he he saw the range that ed oxenbold could bring to the screen and instead of trying to like rein ed in and and bring him down to earth and try to control him i think that paul dano really let Ed experiment, and I think it worked very much in this case to the benefit of the movie. Uh, as a compliment too, though, I will say that all of the acting above the board was fantastic. This is a, a character-driven movie, so you know the acting is absolutely like the most important thing. The acting is leaps and bounds more important than the story. It's more important than the cinematography. It's it's the most important thing in a movie like this. Uh, and it's it's a small movie, you know. It's it's a small cast, and that again I think works towards the movie's favor. We really only see from maybe five characters through the entire movie, 
consistently. There's obviously other characters, but I mean, how many of them actually stick around for the runtime? And even out of those, we're really focused on the three family members through the majority of the film. And aside from Ed Oxenbold, I really want to compliment, and he's in the movie less than Jeanette and Joe, but Jerry, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, I, I really enjoy Jake Gyllenhaal as an actor. I am an old-school Donnie Darko fan. Um, I love Nightcrawler. He's been in so many fantastic things, so I'm not surprised. But there were some scenes where the camera would be just right up in, in Jake Gyllenhaal's face, and this range of emotion and this range of character that he is, is bringing to Jerry and carrying through the screen and carrying through the action is really impressive. But Carrie Mulligan, again, too, I, I, I really have no complaints with any of the acting, uh, a little bit with a couple scenes. Carrie Mulligan was also great because she she her performance is really layered. I didn't like her character much at first because I thought she behaved strangely like weirder than she should be a little bit maybe over the top a little bit too much but the more that i settled into the movie and the more that i settled into her character the more i really started to enjoy the performance that she was bringing because you see she is a woman who you know edit or, or joe is the character's name joe is 14 years old you know, we don't know exactly when she met and married Jerry, but this this part of her life has been going on for a long time now. And so whatever she was before she met Jerry, before she got married, before she had Joe, is long in the rearview mirror. But there are remnants of it. And so all of this characterization we see from her throughout the movie, is it, it's like past and present and future melding together because she doesn't really know who she is anymore. You know, Joe's character arc is that he he matures over the course of the movie. You know, he he's basically pushed into developing into adulthood very early on in the movie. And so we see him progressively over the course of the movie become more mature than a 14-year-old really should have to be. We see him take on more work and responsibility than a teenager should have to do. And then the character arc that we get with Jeanette, you know, Carrie Mulligan's character, is this, like, struggle to find out what her identity is as, as all of these elements of what her identity has become start to peel away and then you kind of have these raw stages of where her identity was. You know, she, she's very clearly an intelligent woman. Incredibly so. I mean, constantly throughout the movie, she drops these, you know, interesting little quotations. She has all these little interesting affectations that she reveals to Joe. And I feel like, again, as her as the present of her character starts to peel away and this identity that she's built up around herself starts to peel away, 
we start to see more and more and more of that as she, of course, kind of, I mean, it's a mental break, but it also, especially towards the end of the movie, feels like a catharsis of sorts. I don't think that she and Jerry were happy, not for many years, you know, prior to all this happening. And, and again, I'll, I'll, I'm going to pass it back over to you and let you share a few more of your thoughts now. I have more to say about what I think, like, the family dynamic is like. But, yeah, no, I mean, I, the acting is, is the number one thing I want to compliment here. Yeah, uh, in terms of Carrie Mulligan, I, I feel like what you said about uh, maybe feeling her character was a little over, top, over the top uh, towards the beginning and slowly uh, understanding uh, where that's coming from. I, I really love this feeling of like being backed into a corner. Like she's, she's dealt with this for so long and she's shrugged it off, maybe felt that it wasn't going to change, so she just had to adapt to it. Um, and obviously every, every person has a breaking point with the things that frustrate them. Um, whether it's a marriage or their parents or school, whatever it is. So she gets this, uh, like, almost like animal-like behavior. She goes from dealing with it for the good of her son and the good of her own, uh, like, emotional state, and she slowly begins to crack. And when Jerry leaves to go fight the fires, that's pretty much her last stop she's sick of dealing with this marriage that she no longer wants to be in she's sick of having to deal with uh you know jerry's joblessness or his dedication to to holding on to one thing versus like supporting his family and watching her cheat on Jerry, watching her leave Joe behind. It's like you're watching and it feels sort of ridiculous. Like, why are you doing this just now? Like, is this is this really all it takes for you to, to crack and go do all this stuff? And obviously that's not true. You know, it's it's been years of, of pain or whatever it may be. And she's finally doing something about it for herself. Maybe not the most healthy way, but uh, you have to sort of empathize with her because you don't know how long it's been like this, but you assume it's been for a while. Um, and as for uh, Ed, o Ed Oxenbold, uh, I really, really enjoy his character in this movie. I think his physical acting is fantastic, just like facial expressions and just how he moves in a scene and how he's reacting to everything. It's like not something a 14-year-old should do or should have to experience, as you said. And he transforms into this adult, again, as you said. it's He goes from being sort of naive, uh, just doing homework, you know, <laughs> like talking to girls, whatever, uh, just being a kid, and he has to go through this vicious transformation. He has to drive, he has to get a job, he has to care for his mom and worry about his 
dad and it's just like this really stressful time and he has to go through it over like the course of a couple months uh which i think as a theme works really well in this movie on shifting your problems onto your children and sort of forcing them to grow up a lot faster than they usually would and i like personally don't have experience with that but i i like watching it and sort of connecting with that but uh as for jake gyllenhaal uh not not in the movie much but for what he what he is in he gives like his best possible performance it feels so incredibly real it's raw yeah 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 for sure that's i'd say that's like a, a great descriptor for this entire film uh raw and it reminded me almost of like uh, Ozu, Ozu's films, because um, I feel like they're always sort of family dramas or something similar. They're very emotionally uh, raw and open, and this felt like an Americanized uh, Ozu film in the best way possible, not in any negative connotation there. Um, every character feels like they fit in the world all of these events that take place do not feel unneeded or unnecessary they all feel like they're really happening and those kinds of films always get to me i think the ones that feel real that you can connect with they they don't delve too much into the unreal or to the surreal and they just feel like raw like you said mm-hmm. not to not to repeat myself over and over but that is really the best describer i think yeah i i would agree it is a, a good descriptor for the movie and i'm really glad that you brought up how Jeanette's change in behavior feels almost animalistic because my favorite scene in this movie Jeanette This is just shortly after Jerry leaves them to go fight the fires. Jeanette takes Joe into the mountains to the edge of the forest where the firefighters are fighting the fire. You know, they get to see the quarters where the firefighters live. And, you know, she's kind of explaining, like, what I'm not entirely certain where Jeanette was from originally. It seems to be implied Oregon or Washington. But she seems to have some level of experience with wildfires from her father or or something else. There seems to be some history there that isn't fully explored. But regardless, she brings Joe up there and she brings him right up to where they can see the flames. And it's this really strong, impactful scene where you have Joe staring into the fire. And, you know, he... He probably before this, he, he's been worried for his father, but this is the first time where he's seeing the like really violent nature of the fire and just how scary this really is, that this isn't, you know, some small fire. This isn't normal firefighting. This is some serious shit, you know? And he asks her, and I don't, ha- I don't have the exact quote on my mind, but he asks her what happens to the animals. And what Jeanette responds with seems to be really evocative and like a statement on the behavior of the characters throughout the rest of the movie. 
she tells him that she supposes that they adapt. They adapt to the situation. They don't all die. They adapt. They find a way to live. And that's exactly what happens to all of our characters. They've, you know, broken down, but they they get back up on their feet and they start to adapt. And it looks different for each of them. You know, again, as in the case of Joe, it's maturing and becoming a man, probably before he should be. For Jeanette, it's breaking down and getting in touch with who she was in the past and, and not Jeanette, the single, or well, not the single mother, because Jerry is still in the picture, but the Jeanette, the mother, and Jeanette, the housekeeper. And, you know, Jerry is this character who is, as I said, he's experiencing like a state of ennui. You know, he's, he's listless. He doesn't know what to do with his life. I wouldn't even say that like his, his joblessness is an irresponsibility. He, he's just someone who is lost. He's lost in his life. You know, at some point down the line, he and Jeanette, you know, they became a family. And this is what I really wanted to get into. I think these are two people who weren't ready to be a family. These are two people who weren't ready to have a kid. And now they, they had that kid and they made the best of it. And it seems like for 14 years, they put on a pretty okay show. You know, Joe turned out pretty good. And it seems like up until this, there was at least a decent level of happiness in this family. But not unlike Noah Baumbach's marriage story, you know, these are two independent people who I think were just collapsed in on themselves and made to be a family, but maybe they weren't truly ready for it. And so that's what we see happening. You know, this is why I think Jerry made the decision to join the the volunteer firefighters fighting the forest fire. I mean, it's he did not join them to make money. You know, the amount that he says that they're that he's going to make, even in like 1960s dollars is pitiful it's it actually insane for like the amount of danger that these people are putting themselves through that's not why he does it it's not for the money and you know he even gets a, an offer back from the job that he had been working at to come back because you know they, they fired him because he was being too personable but guess what because he was personable the the, the clientele that goes to the golf club is upset that he's gone <laughs> so they want him to come back but and Jeanette says it's because of pride but I don't I don't really think that it is because of pride it's it's more than that sure pride is a part of that but it's also this listlessness of I mean, did he like working there I probably don't think so so by choosing to go back he's just prolonging the inevitable of this fallout so Joining the effort against the fire is like this cathartic release for him. It's like this big explosion of, I don't know where my life has gone. I need to do something with a purpose. And he finds purpose in fighting these wildfires. And it's a dangerous purpose. And it's a little bit selfish, you know, because he has a son and he has a wife and he doesn't really leave anything up to them. 
So I'm not saying that it was a, a healthy decision or the right decision. You know, I mean, there probably should have been more of a discussion with his family members. But when you feel like you're caged and you're backed into a corner, and I think that although Jeanette kept it together better until Jerry left, I think Jeanette was the same way. These are two characters who were caged by what their life had become. And, you know, we know that they've, nothing has really worked out for them because they've traveled all over the country, you know, for Jerry to find work. And that's not good for Joe either. Joe hasn't set down roots anywhere. I mean, Joe seems like incredibly well-adjusted actually for just how much he's been moved around and the fact that he hasn't been allowed to sit still long enough to make like real friends you know he's he's not really a shy character despite all of this he's a bit of a loner you know he it doesn't seem like he tries to jump into a bunch of social situations but he's not poorly adjusted for what he's been through and of course then we see him mature even further beyond that point but i mean he actually starts out at a pretty mature point but yeah it's this all of these characters in this movie it's like everything comes to an explosive head where I, i think that they've been their family has been running on fumes for years probably and you know maybe it's jerry who's the first one to break but when he loses his job that's it you know that's you said that jerry going off to the fire was the last straw for jeanette well jerry losing this purposeless meaningless job that he held is that's the last straw for him that's where he snaps (laughs) and and so there you have it you know he goes off he goes to fight the wildfires and you know shockingly almost nothing bad happens to him when he's fighting the fire he he goes through plenty of stress and he comes back with stories but he comes back at the end of the movie he comes back it's not like he disappears from their lives altogether you know he said he would come back and he really does come back but of course by this point uh Jeanette has discovered her independence again as a woman and she isn't as much as she can maybe forgive Jerry, it's it's not something that she can move past. And so they, you know, the inevitable does happen and they do decide painfully but understandably to break up at the end of the movie. And that leads into, so my favorite scene was where she takes Joe to see the wildfire, but my second favorite scene is is the end of the movie where for a certain amount of time now, I'm, I, I don't remember exactly how long it has been, Joe has been living with Jerry. They've continued living in Montana. They still live in the same house. But Jeanette has regained her independence, and she's moved back to the West Coast, and she's teaching again, and she's redefining who she is as a woman. And, you know, she comes back to Montana to visit with Joe, and... Joe, you know, his job that he gets earlier in the movie to help support the family, he he goes to work at a photography studio. And he's quick to learn, so he's he picks up the work very fast, and it seems like the owner of the studio puts him on a camera very quickly. 
So by the end of the movie, he's being allowed to act as a portrait photographer. And so he, he takes his, you know, visiting mother and his now single father to the photography studio and he sits them down in the in the chairs and he you know he gets himself in the frame to take a portrait a family portrait but it's such a painful thing you know it goes into that raw experience because they aren't a family anymore this isn't a family portrait but you can clearly see how much what joe is doing is is painting Jeanette and Jerry like he he looks relatively happy but they look destroyed in this scene as he's taking this family portrait and I love this because there's like this element of I'm sure all kinds of things are going through their head I'm sure they're wondering if they did the right thing I'm sure they're questioning why they're even there I'm sure that there's just like so many emotions going through their heads in that moment and meanwhile all joe can be is happy because here he is getting a picture with his mother and father yeah yeah that's i'd say that's that's probably my favorite scene but i did want to go back to the uh when Jeanette takes joe to the wildfire because uh that quote you mentioned about uh what happened to the animal or what happens to the animals uh they adapt um, and she also says that the babies, like they can't adapt, so they just die off or whatever. Mm, and, I forgot that. Okay. Yeah. yeah that, that's I, even more interesting then. Right. And I, I think that like that applies really well to Joe, of course, because he's being forced to, to grow up really fast. But at the same time, I feel like he's, uh, as you mentioned, uh, he's experienced a lot of this already. They move around a lot and he hasn't had a chance to just settle in. And I think that has allowed him to adapt to even the worst situations that have, that happened or that happen to his family. Um, whereas something like this might um, completely ruin their child's life. And of course, I'm not saying that, you know, well, and that's, Joe's life. You know, if we look at the quote more broadly, as you've brought it to my attention now, so it doesn't mean, you know, Joe does mature and he does become an adult. So it doesn't necessarily mean death of the child literally. But if I'm if I'm thinking about this now with this piece of knowledge that you've added into the equation, there is a death of childhood. Joe being forced to grow up, I mean, it's not just like he, he has to become an adult in a working sense. I mean, he sees his mother with this other man that she has a tryst with he picks up a condom in the in the guy's house he sees him leave the house after they've clearly uh, his mother and this man have clearly had sex he's being forced to discard his childhood bar none so if we look at it as as the the children die off well yes the children do because joe was forced to become an adult <laughs> right right complete and, loss of childhood yeah i i just love that quote like as a background for the entire film because you have the adapters um i'd say Jeanette is trying to adapt obviously that that falls apart at some point and jerry's obviously trying to adapt because they've kept this on for years but everything has a breaking point and then you have 
loss of childhood with Joe. And I really, really like that. Yeah. Big time. Um, so, so I think we can comment a little bit on now that we've talked about, I think the most critical parts of the movie and that would be the characters and the character acting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do want to say before we leave characters altogether that I don't think that the supporting cast was nearly as interesting. I didn't find Warren Miller all that exciting. It at times felt like he was a character out of a different movie. And now maybe that works because, you know, he's, he's like this swinging, wealthy, older man who's coming in to theoretically sweep Jeanette away. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. I just, I was way more impressed with the dynamics of the family and he, he didn't bother me. I didn't think he was a bad actor. I just wasn't at all excited anytime that he was on the screen. <laughs> yeah. And he feels, what, he feels more metaphorical than he yeah. does literal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can I can agree with that. Uh, I mean, he, he he kind of represents that like fling for independence that Jeanette has, right? Right. And then, of course, really the only other named character in the movie, Ruth Ann, um, kind of acts as a, a love interest for Joe, but she is like very underutilized, which... I think works because the focus is on the family, mm -hmm. but in the beginning of the movie, it almost seems like she's going to be a bigger character than she is. And then she's kind of just forgotten until they make mention of her <laughs> at the very end of the movie. Uh, yeah. So I thought that was a bit odd. She's, she does kind of come and go. And I was wondering if they were going to maybe set up like a, parallel between like her and joe versus jerry and Jeanette, or something similar to that but it just kind of never happened so i'm not i'm not entirely sure what her purpose is but it seems uh, like her purpose is is just to be a a, a friend to joe mm -hmm. it's not even really set up as like a i, I mean it, it could go the path of a love interest but that's not how it's played during the runtime of the movie right and and so she's like kind of representing this uh, if he he if he could stay in montana this is the, the potential for having a friend an actual friend that he would be able to stay in contact with mm. but again even from that standpoint we see so little of her that i feel like her character is is borderline meaningless mm -hmm. I, I, it's one of those things where i this is a movie where i i wasn't entirely in love with the pacing through the entire movie i felt like there were certain scenes that went on a little longer than they needed to and then i felt like there was other things where maybe a little bit more background information could come through you know um it's it's not a long movie by any means and i do know that they didn't have a massive budget to work on this so i'm sure that constrained their ability to you know, get these scenes done in a timely manner. Um, it's not like, I definitely am not disappointed in, in the pace. It's just a one like minor complaint that I have that the pacing doesn't really feel equal throughout the movie. There's, there's, it, it feels almost like acts of a play. Like there, there's different paces for different moments that are happening and and so it, it there are almost like jarring moments I feel like in the movie as it switches between these paces. Mm 
this is something you know most movies do. Not every movie is paced completely equally throughout. But I, I, I felt like this one, it was a little bit unbalanced at times. That That's my perspective. There's, yeah, there's like three concrete acts, but each one is slower or faster depending on what uh, what they're going for, which can be, as you said, jarring when you transition from uh, the second act to the third, or there, maybe there's like uh, like a minor... Uh, connection in the middle of one of the acts to uh, a past or future act rather than uh, sort of just staying consistent the whole time and it it can throw you off a little bit for sure yeah well and you know maybe it's my and, and this is another interesting complaint with like the the pacing of the act structure and maybe it's my my love of marriage story and adam driver's character in that but because Jake Gyllenhaal was so good, I kind of wanted to see him more at the end of the movie. He comes back very abruptly, and he has some fantastic scenes. But then we kind of reached the culmination point of the movie very quickly after that. Like, he's he's not back for a very long time before we're heading right towards the conclusion of the film. Right. And so I, I, I kind of wanted maybe more, more Jerry at the end. Because we get a, a lot of Joe and Jeanette through the middle. And that's fantastic because, as I said, both those characters are also great. But I wanted just a tiny bit more Jerry once he came back from the fire. Yeah, I, de- I definitely think Marriage Story sort of uh, spoiled us with that because you have a lot of both characters to get you know their, ex- like their entire perspectives on the situation. And um, you have... Uh, the the fight scene of course between them so you have a lot of interactivity between them and it sort of makes you uh, it gives you a, a good entire picture of what's going on versus uh, this film which does very well of course but uh, definitely more Jerry would have given that side of this relationship uh, that point of view um, a better like strength, but uh, it, it still works relatively well. Yeah, uh, I, I would agree. I mean, as you say, I think Marriage Story, it's Noah Baumbach. It, like Marriage Story is, is like the family drama equivalent to the Avengers. The Avengers, of course, I don't <laughs> love, but Anyone should admit that it's pretty impressive how well the time was balanced between the ensemble cast and Marriage Story is very much in that camp. The all the characters in Marriage Story, of course, you know, with primary focus on the two main characters, were given really ample amounts of time bouncing back and forth between characters to have their arcs. And, and like I say, I, I just I feel like we get more of Jeanette's arc than we do of Jerry's. We get to see Jerry's explosive reactions to situations. But I would have I wanted to see more out of his arc because we can see this change that comes over Jeanette. And we can see the change that comes over Jerry, but it's 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 quick at the beginning of the movie. And then, you know, he comes back after the fire, after this catharsis that he's gone through. But then there's this explosive release of the relationship falling through. 
and it, you know it jerry's interactions in the movie feel smaller in proportion to the other two characters i just i, I would have liked to see a, a a greater arc you know longer more explored arc with jerry that that would be like my one major complaint otherwise i don't have anything to complain about with um the cinematography of this movie i thought it was very well shot as a period piece set in the 19 like the, the 1950s into the 1960s um it was very well done the costuming was great um it the 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 way that the movie is shot doesn't necessarily feel as vintage as certain movies that go for more of a period effect you know like phantom thread or, or something like that but again, I, they were working in a budget, so I don't know how much they could have achieved that. But the costuming and the sets are great. I, I, the Montana Hills are beautiful, so it made a really nice backdrop for this. A, a lonely backdrop. A lonely but beautiful backdrop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for, for all the bullshit we give uh, CGI, the CGI fire in this movie is pretty good looking. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't even know that it was CGI at first when I first saw it. It's restrained enough to not be like obvious mm-hmm. and glaringly bad. Right. But uh, do you have anything else you want to add, Kobe? Uh, no, I just think, like I said at the beginning, um, this is a very emotional movie. And if you don't like character movies, you probably won't like this because that is the most important part of this. Um, each character, each of the main characters are all really, uh, well acted and, um, I, I really love movies where there's this huge problem and it doesn't sort, like, it doesn't shift all the blame onto one character and there's all this, like, tension between everyone. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so that about sums up our thoughts on wildlife then. Uh, Kobe, if you were to give it a rating, what would you give it? Uh, Four to five, I'd say. Okay, I'm sitting at more of a three and a half out of five. I really did enjoy it. I think that it has a few elements that do weigh it down, like I was discussing. But it is a debut, and I'm more harsh on debuts than I sometimes maybe should be. Mm-hmm. But I'm very, very excited to see what Paul Dano will do next. I hope that he decides to direct something else and that this doesn't become a one-off. You know, I know he's acting in a few more things now, and I hope that after that he comes back to directing because I think he has just a mountain of potential. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so then without further ado, with the discussion on wildlife completed, uh, Kobe, uh our second movie that we watched this week, and I think the one that both of us are a little bit more excited to talk about, is Stanley Kubrick's 1966 classic, Dr. Strangelove, or sometimes called by the subtitle, or how, or what, what is it, Kobe? Uh, or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, is that what it is? Yeah, that that's it. And that's really a fantastic title for <laughs> yeah. what happens in this movie. For sure. Now, but before we start talking about the movie, Kobe, I, I don't know if you actually know this. You probably do, since I know that you look at what I do on Letterboxd. This was my first Stanley Kubrick movie. Can you believe that? I Absolutely not. I thought, 
I know you hadn't seen The Shining, but I thought there was something. That's that's kind of insane, actually. No, it's it's actually really very strange. It's something <laughs> I almost feel embarrassed about. I own just about every Stanley Kubrick movie on Blu-ray. Um, and I've wanted to see them all for years, but something, I always just end up picking something else up first mm-hmm. and then it gets pushed further down into the backlog. And I really, I, I can't even begin to explain why. But now, finally, after watching this movie, unsurprisingly, it was great. And I can with certainty say that I'm moving every other movie in Stanley Kubrick's filmography finally up into my priorities. You know, I think it's it's definitely time. <laughs> uh but yeah, th- this movie was great. I'm going to I'm going to pass it over to you. You can give your thoughts first and then I've got some some really interesting opinions on this movie. Okay. Um I'll start off with the fact that I'm a huge Kubrick fan. Uh easily one of my top five directors um so i'm pretty much expecting to go into a film like this and love it um kubrick's like stance on a on a comedy was always really interesting to me and this film is so goddamn funny and i can't even explain why it's such a good political satire uh it helps a lot that i'm i'm like really passionate about like history and and period pieces um, and this is like sort of a period piece, but it's so uh, ridiculous in in the best possible way. Like it's not it's not like slapstick or anything like that. It's just really well formed jokes and like crazy characters. Um, it's just so it's so enjoyable. I I can't even begin to explain. Like it's only an hour and a half, but. I feel like I was, it felt so much longer because of how much I was enjoying it. I just wanted the, to keep going on. And when it ended, I was, I was kind of sad because I, I don't know. I really, I really do. I really love this. Yeah, me too. I, and I can agree with um, the fact that this movie, you know, I mean, it, it's over an hour and a half, but it could have gone on way longer. All of the characters were so great. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it really is like the perfect amount of movie. I don't think that there needed to be more, Mm -hmm. but with some of the plot details that happened at the very end of the movie, I almost would have taken a sequel as stupid as that sounds (laughs) (laughs) with, you know, them with the, with the U S government adapting to uh, their maybe possibly predicament (laughs) wink wink. Uh, by moving down into mine shafts and, you know, beginning Nazi eugenic experiments. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so this movie, it's a, uh, it's a, it's really is, it, it's a period piece. It, it captures the anxiety of the Cold War. And I think it's really interesting too. You know, this movie came out in 1966. So the Cold War had already been raging for a considerable amount of time, mm-hmm. but post this movie's release date there was a lot more (laughs) yeah so it's also funny to think about what stanley kubrick could have done you know 20 years on you know adding in like the reagan administration and like even pushing it past maybe even to the like george hw bush years 
like the situations that could have come out of those political timelines would have also been equally hilarious. And yet the content of this movie, again, despite being set in 1966, is very timely Mm -hmm. because it's, I would say even more being more than being a political satire, it's a culture satire. Mm -hmm. And he has some really scathing and funny critiques on the culture of the time but a lot of the culture of the time has carried on till now (laughs) so i don't know you're you're right this movie was downright hilarious it's it's a little bit slow to build to some of the comedy Mm -hmm. um like for the first 20 minutes i was really enjoying myself but i wasn't really like laughing laughing Mm -hmm. but then they introduce Buck Turgidson. Oh my God, yeah. If I'm getting his last name right. And he easily became my favorite <laughs> character in the movie. I mean, again, major compliments to Peter Sellers for carrying three amazing characters that feel distinct of each other. Mm-hmm. But Buck Turgidson <laughs> was fucking hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's there's so many scenes that I can I can recount from him alone. And then, like, you stack upon, like, every other performance, and it's just, like, it's just so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, you know, of course, we have the, the titular Dr. Strangelove, also played by Peter Sellers. Mm-hmm. Peter Sellers played the um, RAF uh, I, I, executive commander to the the, the general who, who jumps off the deep end <laughs> and decides to take nuclear war into his own hands uh he also plays the president of the united states (laughs) and then he plays dr strangelove who is a former nazi scientist and probably in my opinion the second funniest character in the movie just after buck turgidson (laughs) Um, he's, he's a really strange character, you know, he, he isn't introduced until like the last third of the movie. (laughs) And, but when he does, he like really starts to steal the show, you know, he's wheelchair bound and he, he has like limited movement, uh, from whatever, I don't know, post-war injuries he has, but he, he delivers easily my favorite scene in this movie, Peter Sellers as Dr. Strangelove, right at the end of the movie, after, you know, they think that the Russians are going to, like, this doomsday device is going to be tripped because uh, the the bomber crew that we've been watching successfully managed to release their payload. You know, it was the only nuke that successfully managed to be released. So they think that this uh, doomsday device is going to go off. And so Dr. Strangelove's comes up with this idea that, well, they they have enough time to get a couple hundred thousand people into various mine shafts around the country. And, you know, they'll they'll select 10 women for every man and they'll be selected on their eugenics. And as he's talking, he's giving this monologue to the assembled U.S. generals and politicians and you just watch as this former Nazi scientist can like no longer suppress his Nazi urges. <laughs> you know, his arm keeps flying up as he as he tries to salute and he starts calling the president his Fuhrer. <laughs> 
And he, he's going on this like long monologue about eugenics and how they can rebuild the human race via, you know, like proper specimens, <laughs> you know, like there's going to be this rigorous selection process by who gets to go into the bunkers. <laughs> and then it's hilarious, you know, too, because earlier in the movie, they bring the Russian ambassador down into the war room, which is unprecedented. <laughs> but the, the U.S. president is this, I guess, more liberal character who wants to avoid a nuclear war if possible. So he brings the ambassador in there to try and they're, they're trying to figure out a solution to this uh, bad situation that has started. And so then you have the Russian ambassador standing there and he's looking like, you know, really satisfied with Dr. Strangelove's monologue. And he's like, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Oh, I, I, hilarious movie. One of my favorite scenes, uh, I think I, I want to talk about two because I love them equally. Um, one of them is more of a running joke with every time that they're talking about um, bringing in the Russian ambassador, Buck keeps saying, don't bring him in here. He'll see the big screen. And there's just something like so childlike about that. Um, like you have this, this giant board that's, basically showing the end of humanity and you have you have buck just like freaking out that this russian guy is gonna see it and he's he's just like oh don't don't show him that it's my big screen don't show him that like i don't know there's just something so like hilarious about how how childish buck is like he's he's he has like this childlike wonder and yeah well and the running joke pays off in the end <laughs> because you know, as they're all figuring out how they're going to survive this nuclear apocalypse that's supposedly coming now, well, look, the uh, Russian ambassador goes over and starts taking pictures of the big board. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out that Buck was right. <laughs> and the other part is, um, it's it's Mandrake, uh, the assistant director, or whatever whatever he is. It's it's a long title, but he's. He's trying to get a hold of the U.S. president because he wants to tell him the code so that they can uh, call back all the planes and stop nuclear annihilation from happening. And there's this other like general there that he's like he's not a general, but he's he's in command of the the troops right. that they sent to stop this insurrection from happening. And before you share this story, I, I feel like we should note. This character's name is Bat Guano, which is absolutely hilarious because that effectively means that his name is Batshit. I don't know if you picked up on that, Kobe. I I, I was watching and I this mantra calls him that and I'm just like, okay, good in, good insult. I didn't even I didn't even realize that was just, just like his name. No, his his name is literally Batshit. <laughs> uh um but he's like he's trying to get a hold of the president and he doesn't have enough money to to pay for the call so he's like that coca-cola machine over there shoot the lock off of it get some money and uh mr bat guano is uh he's like i'm not gonna do that that's private property and mantrix like mad and he's like just do it are you serious are you can you imagine what they're going to say when they find out that you've been obstructing a call to the US president and he just says fine I'll get your money but you know what's going to happen if you don't get the president you're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company and 
I don't know. I don't know what it is. That's just so funny to me. Well, I don't. It's a little bit of a consumerist critique, <laughs> right, I would say. Right. I mean, the fact that apparently in this world that Mister Batguano <laughs> thinks that a corporation is is so terrifying that th that's a worse <laughs> scenario than nuclear war breaking out. Right. Oh. But he he does, of course, go to the Coca Cola machine to get the change and, and shoots it. And there's another very funny scene where. As he's getting the change, the Coca-Cola machine starts spraying him with soda. <laughs> every, every single one of the characters in this movie is a buffoon. Yeah. But in the best way. <laughs> like, th these are not able-bodied and intelligent politicians and soldiers. These are, are fools, every single one of them. <laughs> I really I really like Mandrake, too. Just having this, this like, well-mannered... Well uh, god save the queen british dude just like he's like dealing with this insurrection happening in the united states and this like incoming nuclear war and he just has to deal with the uh the commander of this this air force base and well yeah and and he's a great foil to the commander of the base general ripper mm -hmm. as well because general ripper like he starts off and you're seeing these first scenes with him and he just seems like this kind of hard-edged, hard-boiled U.S. Army general. Like he's like he seems like someone who's seen some shit and, and he's confident and he's ready to deal with whatever is coming, right? But then as, as he's like talking to Mandrake throughout the movie and you start learning more about why he's doing this insurrection <laughs> and, and how he thinks that you know, the, the communists are poisoning the water supply and, and brainwashing the U.S. population and the, that they're coming to harvest his fluids. That, like, that's the most hilarious detail that we get. We keep getting these mentions, like, from his, his um, uh, like, documentation throughout the movie. Like, he, he sends a letter to the, to the Pentagon, and, it, and he ends the letter by mentioning that he's going to stop, like, the theft of fluids. <laughs> And it's a really weird line. I can't remember exactly what it was. And you're like, well, that's kind of weird. And, you know, all the characters in the war room think that it's pretty weird, too. And, and so then he's talking about it. And, yeah, it comes up that, you know, like the, all these conspiracy theories that he's developed started while he was having relations with a woman. <laughs> and now he, he thinks for whatever reason that the communists specifically want his masculine essence they want his fluid and and so this entire insurrection that he's started like his plan is well if if i close off the base and and i use this dumb piece of legislation that got written into law um without the u.s president apparently paying attention to it which is you know definitely hilarious in and of itself uh, because that kind of thing happens all the time in politics there's there's a lot of bills where little mysterious things sneak their way in um so he utilizes this little piece of legislation to effectively declare war on russia himself and then his his entire backing to this idea is well you know, I've got these 43 B-52s, and if they all go hit their primary and secondary targets, the U.S. will have no choice but to do a full commitment to a nuclear war. <laughs> uh, and, and Buck Turgid Sid 
for his uh for his part does want to go that route <laughs> multiple times throughout the movie he you know he, he effectively tells the president that well why should why should the u.s be caught with their pants down <laughs> meanwhile the u.s is is dropping nukes on russia so there's there's a lot of irony in, in this movie um which i really like like the line uh probably one of the most quoted gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room uh when the ambassador for russia and buck churchison are basically wrestling when they're fighting like children <laughs> yeah they're fighting like children <laughs> because buck is absolutely certain that he's using a camera in the war room which of course as you mentioned we find out later that he is um and there's this backdrop also that comes up a lot at the at the airfield um it's a sign and it says peace is our profession which is the uh, official slogan of the uh what was it the pac and every single time they show that sign there's like a hail of gunfire and explosions just going past it and i just i, I love that <laughs> yeah well and and of course general ripper to another hilarious scene with him again as as that pieces is, is our profession sign is in the background you know the the other group of us soldiers is coming in to stop this insurrection he has a a browning machine gun hidden in his golf bag <laughs> and he makes mandrake come and feed the belt into it and he's just kind of standing out the window spraying this browning machine gun not really aiming at anything in particular while his cigar hangs out of his mouth it's just a really hilarious image as like this this character who's you know desperately i guess his entire worldview is based around trying to preserve his masculine essence is standing there like a big macho man hip firing a, a, a machine gun uh, it's 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 really so good yeah and of course can't forget to comment on all of the uh the scenes on the b-52 which while the the scenes of the b-52 in flight were you know very dated mm -hmm. unsurprisingly they were model on a backdrop and you know none of that was composited mm -hmm. all that impressively uh obviously didn't take anything out of the movie i think that it it kind of even added to the humor mm -hmm. In, in the present. Uh, but all the scenes on the B-52 were, were also hilarious. All the characters in the B-52 were pretty funny. Uh, the pilot, played by a man who goes by Slim Pickens, <laughs> yeah. was very, very, very funny. Uh, a man who didn't really seem like he should be a pilot. <laughs> he seems like he, he'd be a, a rodeo cowboy or something, rather. Major TJ King Kong. <laughs> Well, and I, I was actually really, because I hadn't looked at the cast before we got into this movie, but I pulled up the IMDb, and I kept, I was watching it with my other friend, and I kept saying, is that James Earl Jones? <laughs> and so I pulled up the IMDb page, and I was like, oh my god, you know, James Earl Jones, this is like pre-Darth Vader, and obviously pre-Mufasa, is just in this plane as one of these bumbling B-52 techs. <laughs> And then, of course, like the uh, probably the most memed scene in in the movie uh, happens near the end with uh, the the pilot played by Slim Pickens, where they can't get the Bombay doors open, so he goes down to open the doors manually, and then he rides the the nuke down like a 
like a rodeo cowboy. Uh, he sounds so excited while he's doing it too. Yeah. No, he's super <laughs> into it. He 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 is one hundred percent ready to to ride that nuke into infinity. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I I honestly I I feel like I should have way more to say about this movie, but. The best thing I can say about it is that it's absolutely hilarious and it's it's very well done and and the humor never gets boring. Actually, speaking of irony, um, the the very ending of the film, uh, just after the the doomsday device goes off, you have um, um, what is it? It's it's a Vera Lynn song. It's we'll see you again or something. Uh, what is it titled? We'll meet again. We'll meet again. So <laughs> you have you have this series of nuclear blasts that are going to cover the world in a fallout for almost the next century. And you have this like love song written uh, like during World War Two about meeting again and some sunny day. Uh, lovers rejoicing and you just have this backdrop of, of nuclear blasts killing every human on planet earth it's it's beautiful well did you and did you think that the conclusion of the movie implies that the doomsday device actually existed because i actually had a different interpretation of the ending i think that when we see the russian ambassador taking pictures of the big board at the end of the movie mm-hmm. i i'm pretty sure that the doomsday device is is just a big bluff by the russians i don't think it actually exists and so i think what we're actually seeing with all those nuclear blasts at the end you know we see the ambassador taking the pictures of the big board i'm pretty sure that that's the russians nuking the u.s's strategic targets Mm. but i'm not entirely certain and i think that's why he also comments that uh, Dr. Strangelove's idea is is so good too because what could be more hilarious than tricking the entire U.S. political structure into thinking that there's a doomsday device and making all of the commanders you know, duck their heads into mine shafts and hide while the Russians nuke everything and take over? <laughs> I Yeah, I suppose that's that makes just about as much sense too. I mean, maybe I'm off base, but I, I just thought that, I mean, at that point, why would there be any point in actually taking a picture of the big board? So I, I guess. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. We also get a couple funny lines uh, as they're talking about the mineshaft plan. So earlier in the movie, uh, the Russian ambassador says that they built the doomsday device because they thought that the Americans were working on a doomsday device and they didn't want there to be a doomsday device cap. <laughs> So this, you know, plays into this whole like arms race that was going on through the entire Cold War where the Russians and the US constantly competed with each other to build bigger and better weapons. And then at the end of the movie when they're discussing this plan to hide in the mine shafts and, you know, survive down there for 100 years and, you know, use eugenics to build a perfect replacement human race, uh you have I think it was Turgidson say that we can't let the Russians get to this first. We can't have a mineshaft gap. <laughs> so they're turning even this idea of hiding in mine shafts from the nuclear fallout into an arms race. <laughs> it's 
they they both always have to be on the edge of whatever is going on. Like they don't even they don't even stop to consider like oh my god everything we know is going to be destroyed. They just they just move on to the okay mine shafts got it. What are we gonna do down there? Like how are we gonna how are we gonna do this? I don't know. I, I love it. Yeah, well, and every call, too, with the, the Russian premiere on the phone was also equally hilarious. There, there isn't even a character for him. Like, all you hear is a little bit of faint mumbling on the other line. But nonetheless, the Russian premiere is, is a hilarious character <laughs> because you learn that, like, he, he's apparently constantly drunk <laughs> or constantly with women. <laughs> I don't know. It just adds this really colorful, funny tinge to every conversation that he has with the U.S. president who's trying so desperately to please him. And you, you have Ripper mention um, he's never seen like a Russian person drink because they're always or drink water because they're they're always drinking vodka. And of course, he leads that into the whole fluoridation thing, which uh, is still timely today for some reason. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it definitely is still timely. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, his, his General Ripper's conspiracy theories go deeper than just pure fluoridation. <laughs> I mean, there, there's some stuff that in, in, like, how he's choosing to look at the world and what the Russians are planning to do to him and the American people, it, it's, like, some kind of, I would say, toxic masculinity-tinged... Um, male like fear and anxiety <laughs> i don't know i think also um i have so much to say uh the whole like the casualness of being in the war room has always been funny to me like um they introduce when they're introducing our favorite character uh buck He's with he's with a woman, his secretary, and obviously they they have something going on. And later on, when he's in the war room, she literally calls his phone in the war room when they're discussing like nuclear annihilation. And he's like, "I told you not to call me here." And they're like just talking about how he's gonna be home soon and nothing bad's going on, but there's there's like a nuclear holocaust approaching. And yeah, no, that was hilarious. And he, he also makes sure to ask her if she's said her prayers and to remind her to do that if she has. <laughs> yeah. They just, they have a, a weird, like, because she seems like she would just be his, like, mistress or something, mm -hmm. but they have, like, a weirdly kind of adorable relationship, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. And maybe because of how childlike Buck is. <laughs> I don't know. Very funny movie. Do you have anything else you want to add? I, I don't know. I have nothing. <laughs> Well, wow, so that pretty much captures all of our thoughts on uh, Dr. Strangelove. A little bit less to talk about with this one. Uh, not for for lack of trying. I mean, it, we I think we both loved it quite a bit, and we'll get to our ratings here in a second. Uh, I just, I don't know, my, <laughs> my headspace on this, every time I think of scenes from this movie, I, I laugh, and it's, it's really hard for me to put together like a, a, a really strong string of uh, thoughts on it, mm -hmm. but... If you, if you like dark comedies and you like political satire and you like satire in general, absolutely be sure to check this out. Even if you're not a fan of Stanley Kubrick, even if you've never seen a movie of his, this is a must-watch if you like very funny satire. Kobe, what would you rate it? Four and a half, I guess. 
you know what? I'm going to meet you on this one. I'm at exactly a four and a half, too. I, I honestly, I have very little to complain about. Yeah, very, very fun, very entertaining movie. Never makes you feel bored. You always have a smile on your face. It's, it's wonderful. All right, everybody. With that, this has been episode four of the Synchronicity podcast. I'm Destin. And I'm Kobe. And we're signing off. See all of you later.